Hello and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is episode 1D, The Carving of Society. Imagine, if you will, a future historian. She's from perhaps 2,000 years into the future. Perhaps she's from a foreign land and perhaps she's looking back on the Europe and America of our time. Of the second millennium AD. And she's digging around through the archaeology, the detritus of our age, finding the plastic bags, finding the skeletal remains of cars, and then she unearths this pack of playing cards. And with them she finds an extract of the Penguin History of Games, quoted by the Daily Telegraph. Daily, she's worked out through her long studies, Daily was a journalist and part of the great journalistic Telegraph family. They started out as telegraph operators and went on to run newspapers. Whether Daly was the brother or the father of Calcutta Telegraph remains to be established. Anyway, the future historian has found these playing cards. And she discovers in the book that the different suits of cards represent different parts of society. Diamonds represent the nobility. Hearts represent the clergy. Spades represent the middle class and clubs represent the peasants. Moreover, the cards have a hierarchy. Diamonds trump hearts, trump hearts trump spades, and so on. And that makes sense, right? Nobility are higher than clergy in the social order, clergy are higher than the middle class, and so on. And the future historian takes this information about the cards and tallies it with what else they know about our time. They know that there are these documents talking about working class peasants. There are these documents talking about the middle class. And the historian, the future historian, concludes that during our time, at the turn of the second millennium AD, society was deeply divided into classes, with a strict hierarchy and with little movement between the different classes. In fact, she's found cases where People's parents were working class, and even though they came into power and were important politicians, they still called themselves working class. How good is the ancient historian's case? Well, by the standards of ancient history, it's pretty darned good. She's got this division of society at work in our playing cards, in our leisure time. Surely the divisions of society into classes must affect every moment of our day, all of our interactions with other people. We've always got to know, in practice, the class of the person we're speaking to in order to know how to speak to them. Her case is a strong one of... Uh, it's a case for a society carved into these rigid social groups, groups whose stringency would make a Marxist blush... But the future historian, despite having a good case by the standards of ancient history, is not entirely right. The truth is that there are people who identify with certain classes. And the concept of class is sometimes helpful for understanding our society, but it's never the whole story. She's extrapolated from too slender a basis. It's too schematic. It captures something that's kind of useful for understanding society, but it makes it all there is to understand. It's almost as if I mean, take one of those beautiful paintings by Leonardo da Vinci and try and explain why the composition is as it is. And you can like draw these triangles, draw these pyramids 
and show that the composition has a pyramidal structure. And that's what gives it that sense of stability combined with motion, that sense of harmony and um, at the same time strife. But if you think that those triangles are all there is to the painting, if you think that you can take down the real painting and hang up the triangles and you've caught the full complexity of the Da Vinci painting, then you've misunderstood. You're taking the idealization too seriously. That would be silly. And that's what the, the future historian is doing for us. Moral of the story. Although carving up society in a certain way can help us understand it, we can take it too far. We can take it too seriously. This week, we look at the carvings of society in ancient India, from the 6th century BC to the end of the Mauryan era. And, as you may have guessed by now, there's a huge word of caution which goes with this. The evidence that we have is just about as slender as the future historian had for our age in our story. And the extrapolations that we make are sometimes just as generous as hers were. We can understand the divisions, but we've got to be careful to make sure that we understand what sort of impact they had on day-to-day -day life. Okay, I can't put it off any longer. It's gone on long enough. We've talked about the ancient history of India for hours now and not really confronted it head on. Sit down, put your serious face on, it's time to talk about caste. Well, actually, not so fast. The idea of caste doesn't exactly belong in ancient India. The word itself is a Portuguese word. It means something like species in the old non-biological sense you might use when you say, that's a peculiar species of argument, or the aunties who bake are a unique species. So it applies to a group of inanimate objects sometimes, or tribes of people, or species in the biological sense too. It was Portuguese colonialists of Western India who first applied the term to the sections of Indian society. But the reality they applied it to was far messier than the word caste can possibly make sense of. There is no ancient Indian word or collection of words which can be translated as caste with any accuracy. Nor was there anything that neatly corresponds to the concept of caste. In this sense, and in some other senses, caste is an invention of the colonialists. Instead of caste, the ancient Indians had two concepts, varna and jati. So most people would count themselves as of a particular varna and or as part of a particular jati. And to some extent, these ways of carving up society are cross-cutting. But even these weren't the most important ways society was divided for everybody. For many ancient Indians, divisions of Varna, divisions of Jati didn't matter that much. There were other ways of carving up society, cutting across both Jati and Varna, and these often mattered more. Today we go through these ways of carving up society. We start with Varna, then we look at Jati, and then we take a quick look at the other, sometimes more important divisions of society, the clan and kin groupings. For each, we look at their origin and what they meant in practice to the average ancient Indian in our era. Just for the record, I don't like this topic. For one thing, caste is talked about a lot in studies of India. And I mean a lot. 
In fact, about half my university library books on India are on cast. It's a whole shelf. And that's about four times all of their books on ancient India put together. And as we shall see, it's just not the case that caste was so vastly important in the ancient world. But it's still much too important to go any longer without getting the record straight. Even worse than this, though, caste is a political minefield. If you don't know much about the history of caste, or Varna and Jati, then this episode will be a gentle introduction. But if you already know about the history of caste, then there's a danger that this episode will come across as a provocative and politically charged discussion of how important caste was in ancient India. You might think that I make too little of caste if you're of one political persuasion, or too much of caste if you're of the opposite political persuasion. I promise I have no political agenda here. I'm trying and be fair and balanced. In my defence, I'm just repeating the ideas of major academic historians in India So if something's wrong, then blame them. I'll get it wrong in places too, and I'm truly sorry. Way back in the earliest times, when Indian ideas were first written down, they talked of division of society into varnas. Varna literally means colour, which isn't very helpful. Really, the varnas pick out four groups of society, each with their own distinctive role. Very roughly, we have the Brahmins, who are the priests, the Kshatriyas, the rulers, the Vaishyas, the herders, and the Shudra, the servants. And at least in theory, these groups are hereditary. Whatever Varna your parents were, is also your Varna, so you inherit the role of your forefathers, of your ancestors. It's a sort of specialisation by family. And the division of society into Varnas is one of the most ancient social structures you'll come across as old as it gets. It comes from the Vedas. The Vedas are the oldest, the four Vedas are the oldest of the Hindu documents. Uh, They're composed a millennia or more before Christ. And the oldest of the four Vedas is the Rig Veda, which means knowledge hymn, or something like that. So naturally enough, the Rig Veda is a collection of ancient hymns containing some knowledge. And one of these hymns is called the Hymn of the Primeval Man. And the hymn is about a primeval man, This guy was the whole universe, and he was an unfortunate chap by our standards because he was sacrificed, and the parts of his body were carved up. And some of those parts formed humanity. So the mouth became the Brahmins, the priests. The arms became the Kshatriyas, the rulers. The thighs became the Vaishyas, the herders. And the feet became the Shudras, the servants. Two important ideas are expressed beautifully by this story. First, that the division of people into their Varna roles are supposed to be a natural thing. It's written into the, the, the nature of the universe. In, some, in fact, some, some historians think that the whole universe was divided into Varnas. It's not just humanity. So Varna is actually written into the basic physics of the world. And the second idea expressed beautifully is that these groups of people are really supposed to be unified in the sense that they should work together like different parts of your body to form one organic whole of society. There's hierarchy amongst the Varna too. The standard hierarchy we we think of today is Brahmin, Kshatriya, Vaishya, Shudra. Priests, rulers, traders, servants. 
but early Buddhist texts typically swap the priests and the rulers. So it's Kshatriya, Brahmin, Vaishya, Shudra. And in fact, even some Brahminical texts put the Kshatriya, the rulers, first. And other texts put the Vaishya second. But everyone agrees that the Shudra are on the bottom. Their job is to serve the other three Varnas. The top three Varna are called twice-born, which refers to the idea that after their physical birth, they have a spiritual birth. It's marked by a special ceremony. The Shudra are not twice-born. And hierarchy matters to more than just what ceremonies you perform. There are some restrictions on how higher Varna people can interact with their lower Varna contemporaries. Take food, for example. Brahmins shouldn't accept food from Shudras. Um, and according to the ancient Hindu law books, ancient Brahminical law books, you aren't usually allowed to marry outside of your Varna. That's not quite true, actually. If you're a woman amongst, woman amongst the twice-born Varnas, you can marry up, although men can only marry down. Still, there are fewer social restrictions from Varna than you might think, at least amongst twice-born Varnas. There's nothing to stop you meeting someone of a lower Varna, shaking hands or even giving them a nice firm hug, going round for dinner and then inviting them for the sacrifice afterwards. At least that's what the ancient law books say. We've got to keep in mind, I think, the fact there's a huge gap between theory and practice here. Quite a lot of ancient Indian texts have a very neat sense of idea of classifying things. We can classify a city, a country, or all of humanity into neatly, discrete, defined pockets. And quite often, the reality turns out not to be nearly so neat as the theory books have it. For example, in the Arta Shastra, there's a rigorous city plan. It's got straight roads, square sides, and locations in the city picked out for each craft. The blacksmiths go here, um, the merchants go there, the soldiers go here. Whilst some of these ideas are quite sensible, and you can see what's going on, such neat and ordered cities never existed. Nothing even close to them has been found. So there's a gap between the nice neat theory and the practice. And there's the same gap between the theory and practice of Varnas too, in ancient India. So let's go through each of the Varnas in turn, picking out their role in, the, in theory and also the implications of being a member of the Varna in practice. Let's start with the traditional top of the lot, the Brahmins. I describe these as the priests, and that's roughly what their traditional role is supposed to be. In fact, there are six sacred duties of a Brahmin. To study the Vedas, to teach the Vedas, to sacrifice for yourself, to sacrifice for others, to give gifts, and to receive gifts. And this paints a picture of a class of people who in ancient India were hard at work studying and removed from the hustle and bustle of making a living. Recluses. And in fact, for most ancient uh, Indians, being a Brahmin is nothing like this at all, as in fact for most modern Indians. Even in the Hindu law books, it's clear that Brahmins can take jobs of lower varnas if they need to. And there are plenty of indications in the law books that many Brahmins do exactly this. So there are laws dealing with Brahmins who teach shudras, there are laws dealing with Brahmins who make a living by astrology, and there are laws dealing with Brahmins who are thieves, outcasts. And outside the law books, other sources contain stories of Brahmins who have all sorts of jobs. Brahmin kings, Brahmin warriors, Brahmin dramatists, 
Brahmin animal handlers, carpenters, carriage drivers, wheelmakers, caravan guards. You get the picture. Indeed, there were whole towns of Brahmins. They occupied land donated by the king to Brahmins, often with some huts or some caves. And the local Brahmins kind of owned this land. They could do whatever they liked with it, and they could pass it on to their children, but they couldn't sell it. So many of these donated these donated areas became Brahmin towns. And some of the towns were just normal towns in which Brahmins had de facto control, but other towns were populated almost exclusively by Brahmins. And that just makes much more sense once you realise that Brahmins had lots of different occupations, even back then, as opposed to having a town filled only with priests. By the Mauryan era, many of the social advantages of being a Brahmin had disappeared. You're still to be respected by everybody, but now you're put on the same level as Jain and Buddhist monks, many of whom would have been much lower varna than you. And your special immunity to prosecution was gone. Before, you were punished less severely, or could get out of prosecution all entirely, but now, by the emperor's commands, you're, going, you're supposed to be punished the same whether you're a high-class Brahmin or a Shudra. As Cotillia, advisor to the Emperor Chandragupta Maurya, wrote, men are great by deeds, not by birth. And that's the prevailing atmosphere in the height of the Mauryan Empire. Next in the traditional order are the Kshatriyas. I called these rulers, and that's roughly right. Their sacred duties are studying the Vedas, making sacrifices for themselves, and giving gifts. So far, just like the active side of the Brahmins, uh, uh, sacred duties. But the Kshatriyas also have protecting people as a special duty. So the Kshatriyas were, were kings. Clearly not all Kshatriyas could be kings. There's only so many kings, there's lots of Kshatriyas. So plenty of them were rulers in a lower sense, advisors or rajas in a republic. And the rest were warriors employed by the king or freelance, and they also took a bunch of other jobs too. Okay, confession time. When I was talking about the oldest texts, I said that those oldest texts talked about the Kshatriyas. That's not quite true. The oldest texts talk about the Rajanyas, from the root Raja, which we normally translate king, but can mean ruler in a weaker sense too. And these Rajanya guys seem to have been a different group to the Kshatriyas originally. But they had a similar role, and by our period, we only have the Kshatriyas. Oh, and a another confession, maybe a more important one. I said that, in theory, Varna was heritable. If your parents were born Kshatriya, then you would be Kshatriya too. In practice, this wasn't always true wasn't always true for other Varnas, it was especially untrue for Kshatriyas. For many ancient Indians, Kshatriya became used for anyone who was a ruler. It referred to the role of ruler rather than your, your lineage. And we've already met a nice example of this tension when we talked about the Nandas. Remember the Nandas, those kings famous for their wealth? The ones Alexander the Great refused to face in battle the ones Chandragupta Maurya overthrew to establish the Mauryan Empire. So these Nandas were said by Chandragupta and pretty much everyone else to be low-born. That might mean they were Shudra, 
That's far from clear. Lowborn could mean lowvana, lojati, or working in a lowly occupation. But what is clear is that these Nanda kings claimed to be Kshatriya. They thought of themselves as Kshatriya. And we know this because of what happened when they were beaten by Chandragupta Maurya. So Chandragupta Maurya has finally uh, beaten the Nanda kings and taken control, control of the capital, Pataliputra. And he finds the last Nanda king, Danda Nanda. And according to one story, Chandragupta spares the old king's life. And he even allows him to take a single chariot out of the city and allows him to put anything he wants onto the chariot to take with him. So Danda Nanda puts a bunch of his wealth, a bunch of his gold on the chariot and he also puts his favourite wife and his daughter on the chariot. And he starts to drive off out of the city. No doubt very relieved. But as he's going, his daughter turns back towards the home city she's, she's leaving behind. And she sees Chandragupta Maurya there. This young, conquering hero. And she has the hots for him. Big time crush. So she pesters her father to let her marry him. And her father says, OK, sure. And the important bit is why he says, OK, sure. He says, look, we Kshatriya have a special tradition whereby our daughters may marry whoever they like. And so the daughter and Chandragupta got married and they lived happily ever after, at least until about 300 BC. The point of the story is that here are these people who everyone is saying is lowborn, possibly Shudra. When they become king, they think of themselves as Kshatriya. At least in some people's mind, Varna isn't quite as hereditary as we might think. Next we have the Vaishyas. The Vaishyas were supposed to be the farmers, the thighs of humanity. And their special duties start out the same as the other twice-born castes, learning the Vedas, sacrificing for the self, giving gifts. And the rest of their duties, their specialised duties, are agriculture, cattle, rearing, trade and dealing with money. As we've already seen for the other two Varnas we've discussed, the prescribed roles in theory and what they do in practice are often quite far removed. This is doubly true for the Vaishyas. In fact, Vaishyas following their prescribed role was, by our period, the exception rather than the norm. There just weren't that many Vaishyas in agriculture. Uh, by the Mauryan era. Because as large cities started to form in North India, the agricultural works left to lower class people and the Vaishya um, moved to the cities and become merchants, craftsmen and even money traders. Many ancient societies think of trading and dealing in money generally as a little bit off, something to be frowned on. Islam rather avoids this trap if only because Muhammad was probably a trader himself or related to traders. But the ancient Indian law books at least treat trading in general as a bit suspect and trading in money itself as outright dodgy. Nevertheless, it's not forbidden and the vices in our period seem to have specialised in doing this. Below the top three twice-born Varnas are the Shudras. They don't have the same prescribed roles as the other Varnas. They aren't involved in sacrifices in the same way. And in fact, they couldn't perform sacrifices for themselves in general. There were exceptions to that. 
The Shudras couldn't even talk to people about to perform sacrifices. And they aren't obliged to educate themselves in the Vedas. In fact, to hear the law books tell it, teaching a Shudra came with penalties. Instead, the sacred role of the Shudras is simply to serve the other Varnas. And there's no two ways about it. Some of the law books have got extremely unpalatable rules about Shudras. According to one, the Aitreya Brahmana, Shudras could be woken up at will by anyone from the higher Varnas. And they could be beaten at will too, without possibility of payback. At least for some Shudras in our period, the reality is really very different from the picture that the law books paint. Some were kings, others were important monks. But perhaps a large majority were poor agricultural workers who rarely or never left their villages. At least this tallies with what foreign observers like the Greek ambassador Megasthenes say. In fact, you rarely meet anyone in the ancient Indian tales who is identified as either Shudra or Vaishya. This isn't because people from those Varnas were simply too unimportant to do anything worth telling a story about. After all, there are kings who are Vaishya and kings who are Shudra. Rather, it's because people from these two lower Varnas are often identified not by their Varna, but by some other categorization. Coming towards the bottom of the Varna pile then, they naturally use a different way of carving society when they present themselves to the world in a story. But even the Shudra weren't really the bottom of the Varna pile. That position was reserved for those who didn't fit into the Varna system at all, who didn't have a Varna. The original outcasts. They're called the Chandalas. At the beginning of our period, they simply get grouped with the Shudras, but as time goes on, they get become to be separated out, a new underclass of the underclass. And the law books sometimes compare Chandalas to dogs or cows as if they were no more valuable. And the laws covering their dealings with those who have Varna are really quite severe. Are you from a twice-born Varna? Well, if you touch a Chandala, even by accident, the law books say you must plunge yourself into water, immersing yourself completely, washing yourself clean. If you're from a twice-born Varna and you talk to a Chandala, the law books say you've got to go straight and find the nearest Brahmin and talk to them. And if you get intimate with a Chandala, you're going to be very harshly punished. If you're a Chandala yourself, tough luck. In fact, even worse than that, it wasn't your bad luck, it was your fault. You'd likely done something really wrong in a previous life. For example, you might have been a Brahmin who murdered another Brahmin. Or your parents might have been a Shudra and a Brahmin. It's quite unpleasant stuff in places. So that's the Varna system. During our period from the 6th century BC to the end of the Mauryan era, Varna becomes increasingly unimportant. For example, the Emperor Ashoka, the great emperor of the Mauryan era, never mentions it even once, never even alludes to it. And this seems to be largely because of the rise of Buddhism and Jainism. Those sects take a different view than the orthodox Brahminical line of Varna. According to the orthodox line, remember, Varna is something not natural. It's something that's hard written into the laws of the universe. But according to these new sects, 
Varna is just the result of a human tendency to prefer separating themselves into roles. It's a preference, not a hard reality you have to adhere to. As such, the new sects have no very strict rules about the interaction between Varnas. And people from any Varna become, could become a Buddhist or a Jain monk or nun. If they were a slave, they would have to be freed, more on slaves later. The Buddha is even said to have accepted chandalas into the Buddhist community of monks. So these sects have got a more, more uh, liberal view of the Varna system, but we mustn't go too far. These are not new religions like Sikhism was, which directly opposed themselves to the caste system. For members of these new sects, Buddhism and Jainism, the Varna system still existed, and Brahmins were still to be revered, and their sacred rituals were still to be carried out. It's just that to members of these sects, the Varna system wasn't quite as important anymore. I'll try to shed light on this in a, a later special episode on religion, coming soon. Ancient Indians carved up society in another cross-cutting way, and this is Jati. Jati literally means birth, which again isn't much help, except I suppose it makes clear that your Jati is supposed to be hereditary, it's what you're born into. Each Jati community is supposed to be endogamous, so you can only marry other people of the same jati. And each jati specialises in a certain profession, or perhaps a small set of connected professions. There are many thousands of jatis specialising in different professions. For example, there are jatis that are concerned with perfume making, and others that are basket makers or charioteers, and so on. Don't worry, we're not going to go through each of the thousands of jatis. It's jati that is most commonly translated as caste in modern newspapers, and all the most stringent conditions which we connect in our minds with caste are restrictions that go with jati. The not eating dish from a lower caste person's house and so forth. In the ancient world, that's connected to jati more than varna. The relationship between varna and jati is a bit fiddly. Like I say, they cross-cut. And that's been the source of some serious trouble, because in the beginning of the 20th century, the British colonial overlords decided to get the measure of Indian society. They decided to arbitrarily put each jati into a certain varna to stop those cross-cutting classifications. But that was artificial, because you often had people in a jati which belonged to multiple varna. And this could happen most obviously when the jati had two or more specialised professions. So a jati which made saddles and were horseback warriors, would they be Vaishya or Kshatriya? There's no clear answer. Not in the ancient law books and not anywhere else either. But the British went ahead and forced them in to one of the Varnas. Just to add to the confusion, during some periods... Being a Chandala, i.e. of no Varna at all, was considered a Jati. What is clear is that the Jati system was relatively new in the period of our first season of the podcast. Varna is old. Varna's been around for a millennium or more. Probably more. But Jati seems to have just been solidifying in the 6th century BC. So say the historians. 
and ancient stories agree with this. According to the ancient sources, Jatis arose from intermarriage between the Varnas. So when a Brahmin married a Kshatriya, their children were of none of the four main Varnas. Instead, a kind of separate one in between the Brahmin and the Kshatriya uh, rose up, and that was a Jati. And then as you can see, more intermarrying between these new Varnas and Jatis will produce more and more and more small little groups in the gaps. In truth, many historians doubt that this is how Jati came about. They see it as rather a cynical move to try and legitimise Jati by tying it to the old system of Varna. Modern historians tend to think that Jati and Varna are just too fundamentally different from one another for one to emerge out of the other. There's hierarchy amongst the Jati, just like there is amongst the Varna, but the Jati hierarchy isn't fixed. Uh, a Jati group, a Jati community can go up in the rankings by changing its traditions, by taking on some of the more, more traditional ways of life. And as said above, some Jati cut across the Varna distinctions. Moreover, some historians say, if cross-Varna marriages are so taboo, why weren't, the offering, why weren't the offspring of those marriages outcasts, as opposed to being some new in-between Varna? As for me, I wonder whether and why all this stuff about the origin of Jati matters. Would the ancient Indian know where Jati came from? What difference would it have made to their life? I suspect very little, for reasons that are about to become clear. But first, an elephant's been sitting patiently in the corner of the room for some time now, and it's best we let her speak. Let's talk about the untouchables. This group is famous in the West. It's one of those few things that people know about India. These group of people who it's polluting for other people to touch. In the modern era, they're also known as Dalits or oppressed people. It's a modern term, but it harks back to ancient Indian texts which use the term to talk of poor people without any special reference to Varna or Jati. Modern newspapers tend to use the legal form, which is a rough equivalent of scheduled caste. Now, it would be at least a slight relief if this whole untouchable business was the invention of Western colonialists. Some people claim it was. Sadly, not so. It's certainly true that colonialism deepened and worsened the suffering of many modern Indians. But the idea of untouchableness is ancient. Law books in the early centuries AD give the concept the fell name Aspasia, which literally means untouchable. But even in our period, in the Mauryan period, which is earlier than the label's been invented, there are people who are treated as untouchable for all intents and purposes. Though it's not always clear where this fits in with Varna and Jati. What is clear is that Chandalas, those people without Varna, they're untouchables. According to the law books, touching them makes you impure. Reciting Vedas even when they are in the village is a no-no. But it might not just be Chandalas, there might be other groups in there too. Very low Jatis, like Jatis that specialised in butchering, for example, might be counted as untouchable, even if they were Shudras. And perhaps slaves might count as untouchables too. 
Yes, that's right, there were slaves in ancient India. Not everybody thought so. The ancient Greek ambassador to Pataliputra um, thought that there were no slaves in India. So presumably there weren't many slaves around Pataliputra, but they definitely existed in ancient India. They were called Dasa. They were bought and sold in slave markets, and they could expect a life of abuse. Some people even accepted slavery themselves, kind of walked into it. Those guys could be freed by their masters. For most people, it was a lifelong thing. We know that there were slaves in ancient India, partly because they appear in the stories. Here's a story about a slave. It starts in Champa, and the king is beaten in battle by his enemies, and the kingdom's falling, and one of his wives flees with one of his princesses. The princess is called Chandanbala. So Chandanbala and her mother are fleeing the capital as the enemy army, enemy army approaches, and they're running towards the forest. But an enemy soldier sees them running and goes over and captures them. And he turns to the queen and says, I'm going to marry you. He turns to Chandanbala and says, I'm going to sell you. Well, the queen, the queen's in shock. The kingdom's fallen, her husband's dead, and now she's going to be forced to marry this slave, this, this, this um, enemy. And she dies right there on the spot. And the soldier's only left with the princess, Chandambala. So the slave, sorry, the soldier takes Chandambala to the slave market. Whilst Chandambala's there, waiting to be sold, a merchant called Danava wanders past and sees Chandanbala there and feels sorry for her. So the merchant Danava buys her and says, don't be afraid, I'll treat you as a daughter. So Danava took Chandanbala home, introduced uh, her to his family, to his wife, and said, treat her like a daughter. All was well for a while, but as Chandanbala started to grow up, she turned into a very beautiful woman. And Donovan's wife started to get jealous. Donovan's wife started to think, oh, he bought her just so that he could marry her. That's why he's treating her so well. And one day, when Donovan was out, his wife took hold of Chandanbala, chopped off her beautiful hair, put her in shackles, and put her in a remote part of the house, a storeroom where no one would go looking. And she threatened all the other slaves in the household. Don't you tell him, don't you tell the master anything. Otherwise, I'll do the same to you too. And then she went off back to her own parents' house. Well, Dunover came home and neither his wife nor his adoptive daughter were there. He asked the slaves and they didn't tell him anything. They wouldn't tell him where Chandambala was. But eventually he works it out. He hears the rattling of chains or something. And he finds Chandanbala and releases her. And Chandanbala is thinking, now she's been released, Chandanbala looks back and reflects on her life. It's been a series of ups and downs. She started out as a princess. Beautiful life. Then she was captured and made into a slave. But then she was treated as daughter of the house. And then she was treated as the worst of slaves, put in shackles in a room. And then she was released again. And now she has all she can eat. Once again, she's daughter of the house. 
And Chandanbala starts to have the realisation that she should be kind to people, she should give the good things that she's been given. Because everything can be taken away from somebody and it's not their fault. So she goes to the door with her food that she's been given, some lentils, and she offers it to a monk who's sitting there. And the monk refuses because the monk's fasting. But Chandambala is upset. She really wants to give her food away. So the monk relents and eats. The monk was Mahavira, the founder, in a sense, of Jainism. So that's the story of Chandanbala, how she started as a princess, became a slave, rose to being the daughter of the house, became a slave of the worst sort, and then rose again. What this story tells us is that in ancient India, being a slave could mean all sorts of different things. Well, all this talk about the division of society all sounds clear, but a bit bleak. How important was your varna or your jati? Was it something you had to know about every person you talked to? Did it infect every single conversation? Or was it a bit more like class in modern day England? Important, but not the primary identity of your life. Well, it seems that in, in ancient India, how important varna and jati were depended very heavily on where you were. Some kingdoms were old-school Brahminical kingdoms, especially before the Mauryans got to power. Um, and there, the importance of Varna in particular was really strong. In the countryside and in the big cities of Kasala, for example, Varna and Jati probably mattered a very great deal to probably almost every interaction you had. Some historians even think of the introduction of Jati as a way of keeping the new urban middle class down and the old rulers and priests in their old place on top. So in those big cities, Jati Varna really matter. But in other places, Varna and Jati probably mattered much less. Think about the Himalayan republics, for example. In these places, what matters is your gotra, roughly your clan. That's the primary grouping in those republics. Take the Vrigi. There's a, a confederation of clans. We've met them a few times before. Those are the, the group that were just above Magda, right way back in the second podcast. In the Vrigi, it mattered a lot which clan you belonged to. If you were in the Lichavis, you're part of the preeminent clan, which ruled the capital Vaishali. But you might be from a slightly less prestigious clan, like the Nutter. Mahavira was from the Nutter. There's no evidence of a clear hierarchy in these clans, other than the fact that the Lichavis tend to be politically preeminent. And there doesn't seem to be any insistence that you marry into your own clan. So these are very different things from Jati or Varna. But the clan in day-to-day -day interaction is more important. In fact, clan is so important that the texts often only mention the clan and make no mention at all of the Varna for people from these Himalayan republics, even when it might be considered relevant that they're of a certain Varna. Take the Buddha. Now, you don't often hear about what Varna he was from. And I'm honestly not even sure what Jati he had, if any. But everyone knows his clan, his Gotra. He's called Gautama Buddha, to distinguish him from the other Buddhas of our age. But Gautama isn't his first name. Instead, it's his clan name. It's his Gotra. 
elsewhere, outside of the big cities and outside of the Himalayan republics, still other ways of carving up society were preeminent, were most important, such as your nutty. Your nutty, your, your blood relatives, either on your mother and your father's side or perhaps only on your father's side. And, and these groups could be pretty sizable groups. And since intermarrying between Varnas and between Jatis, though theoretically taboo, was moderately prevalent, your Nati might contain people from several different Varnas and Jatis. It's going to cross-cut those big distinctions of Brahminical orthodoxy. And doubtless, for many people in ancient India, and for many purposes, you needed to ask what someone's Nati was well before you asked what their Jati was. Yet another set of classifications cross-cutting all of these carvings of society were the religious orders, which could be taken by people of any Varna and any Jati, more or less. But that is a story for another podcast. Every week we read something from the original texts. This week, it's a special week, because we're going to read a translation of the Hymn of the Sacrifice of the Primal Man. Um, this is from the Rig Veda, that oldest of the four Vedas. A truly ancient book. I'm going to read a few verses, the verses about the formation of the Varnas. Here we go. A thousand heads had Primal Man, a thousand eyes, a thousand feet. Encompassing the earth on every side, he exceeded it by ten fingers' breadth. That man is the whole universe, what was and what is yet to be, the lord of immortality, which he outgrows by eating food. Skip a few verses. When with man, as their oblation, the gods performed their sacrifice, spring was the melted butter, summer the fuel, and autumn the oblation. Him they sprinkled, him they besprinkled on the sacrificial strew, primeval man born in the beginning. With him their victim, gods, sudgers, seers, performed the sacrifice. When they divided primal man, into how many parts did they divide him? What was his mouth? What his arms? What are his thighs called? What his feet? The Brahmin was his mouth. The arms were made the Rajanyas, his thighs the Vaishyas, and from his feet the Shudra was born. From his mind the moon was born, and from his eyes the sun, and from his mouth Indra and the fire, and from his breath the wind was born. From his navel arose the atmosphere, from his head the sky evolved, from his feet the earth, and from his ear the cardinal points of the compass. So did they fashion forth these worlds. Phew. That's the special episode on cast done with. I've tried my best to mirror what the, the current historians in India are saying about the history of caste in our period. I feel like I've probably got almost there. If I've erred at all, it's making caste slightly less important than it was back then. To remedy that, I'm hoping to have a, a, a friend on who knows a lot about this stuff and we're going to have a chat about caste. So look out for that special, special episode of the podcast coming soon. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider donating to my wife's charity, that's the Snehal Situ Memorial Fund. Details are on the website. Thanks for listening. Take care.